We also focus on clarity and effectiveness of what you write. So we suggest improvements to uh, your writing, to phrasing and, and sentences to help you be more understood, to help you be more clear and to help achieve communication goals. Do you want to impact the world and still turn a profit? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to Growth Everywhere. This is the show where you'll find real conversations with real entrepreneurs. They'll share everything from their biggest struggle to the exact strategies they use on a daily basis. So if you're ready for a value-packed interview, listen on. Here's your host, Eric Sue. Before we jump into today's interview, if you guys could leave a review and a rating and also subscribe as well, that would be a huge help to the podcast. So if you actually enjoy the content and you'd like to hear more of it, please support us by leaving us a review and subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks so much. Okay, everyone. Today we have Max Litvin, who is a co-founder of Grammarly. And if you guys watch any YouTube videos at all, I'm sure you've seen the Grammarly ads. And I've actually seen a lot of Grammarly ads everywhere. And we're going to talk about the entire story about, well, basically how they got there in the first place. So Grammarly is basically something that helps you helps you well it's a free grammar checker and it well helps you eliminate grammatical errors and enhances your writing and it's used by millions and millions of people so max how's it going good um thanks for having me eric and uh just wanted to tell uh, talk a little bit about grammarly and clarify a few things about what it does as its name implies it does correct grammar and spelling but it goes uh, uh, quite a bit beyond that we also focus on clarity and effectiveness of what you write. So we suggest improvements to uh, your writing, to phrasing and, and sentences to help you be more understood, to help you be more clear and to help achieve communication goals. Wonderful. So before we even dive too much into the, the product itself, I want to learn kind of what's your story? Sure. Uh, so I'm originally from uh, Ukraine, which is... Uh, country in Europe. And um, I started uh, working with uh, tech in general as a teenager back in the early 90s, built my own computer uh, out of radio parts, uh, started coding in assembly language and uh, basically machine code, and uh, eventually started um, getting interested in, in uh, tech business. And in about 2001, 2002, I moved to, to the business side, so basically stopped, uh, stopped coding and started thinking about building companies. Yeah, I uh, lived in Canada and you uh, asked most of my adult life. And, and so how about the idea for, for Grammarly? I mean, how did that come about? So my business partner and I, uh, we were working on our previous uh, company uh, and that company was... Uh, uh, providing plagiarism detection technology. Essentially, technology that helps detect text that's not original, that's copied from somewhere. And as part of our work, we often were faced with question uh, from our clients, like why our employees or why our students plagiarize? And um, like, how do we discourage that? And when we, it, it wasn't really part of the work we were doing. We were not uh, in business of answering such questions, but because our clients asked and you want to be client focused, we did some digging and research and trying to understand why people plagiarize. And one of the biggest reasons was that it, it is incredibly difficult to take your thoughts and put them in writing, put them into a document or a message 
or a presentation. It is just difficult and intimidating to many people. Uh, and what we decided to do then, we decided to address this issue or this challenge uh, from a more fundamental uh, direction, uh, making it easier, not necessarily policing plagiarism, but making it easier to write something of your own, making it easier to take what's in your head and put it in words. Uh, and uh, that's, that's how Ideal Grammarly uh, came about. At the time, the, it, it, the idea seemed uh, quite a bit out there uh, because it was uh, 2008, 2009 when we uh, started thinking about it. And uh, the technology wasn't quite there. So we had to really think of how to make it possible. Uh, so we broke it down into pieces, into stages, essentially, from simpler to more complex. So we started with spelling, then grammar, then clarity, style, tone, uh, and then eventually to effectiveness, uh, thinking how to achieve the goals of your communication. So let's say you're writing a blog post that's intended to inform people about specific concepts. Is that blog post achieving that goal? Is that informative? Is it understandable? And so on. So, so basically, that's kind of a uh, holy grail. Got it. Okay. And what kind of numbers can you share around the business today? What I can share is we are over 10 million daily active users. So just to clarify what it means uh, for those not familiar with the term, it doesn't mean that we have 10 million users. We have way, way, way more than that. It means that in any single day, at least 10,000 different people use our product actively. So that's uh, that's one number I can share. In November of last year, we made uh, four and a half billion suggestions in text written by our users. So that's kind of another number I can share. And uh, our team is at about 150, just over 150 people uh, in three offices uh, around the world. Got it. Okay. And how, do, how does pricing work for this this product? So we have a free product. It is essentially a premium model where we have a free product that has a subset of functionality and then we have a premium product that has everything. And premium product is uh, pricing ranges from $30 per month uh, to $145 per year. Got it. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, so you mentioned the, well, I guess backing up a second. So the premium model, I mean, what kinds of people are using the, the premium model? I mean, for myself, you know, I, if I can take myself back to college, I could definitely see myself using something like this. But yeah, what kind of person would use the, the paid versions? It's a very broad range of, uh, a very, very broad range of people because there's so many ways people get value from the product. Students is one example that you, uh, you brought it up and, uh, it's, it's a very good example. Students use Grammarly because so much of their work is in writing and so much of their successes depends on the quality of their writing. But they're not the only segment that, that's in this position. Consultants, uh, marketers, financial analysts, also kind of knowledge workers, much of their output is actually written documents or messages. In their case as well, their productivity and their degree of success to a large extent depends on the quality of their communication, uh, the quality of their, their written communication. Um, so that's that's uh, on the professional side. On non-professional users, people like want to rent out their apartment, want to update their resume to find a job, want uh, their dating profile to look better. Uh, and these might be kind of uh, instances when they decide to upgrade to premium product. Right. Okay. I guess what year did you start the business again? Uh, 2009. 
Got it. And so to, you started the business in 2009. Um, you guys have raised, according to Crunchbase, have raised you know $110 million, but that was way later, right? So it, w- it wasn't like you guys just started this and it, it blew up, right? So you know you started it, and I guess just uh, I, I want people to kind of get an idea of like what that growth trajectory looked like for you guys. What did it look like over the years? Because you know everyone all thinks it's sunshine and flowers when it really isn't. Well, we bootstrapped. And we bootstrapped for a really long time. We only got uh, our first funding round uh, less than a year ago as, as a premature company. And we bootstrapped up until then. And because we bootstrapped, we grew in a very responsible way, which uh, maybe was slower than we could have grown if we took funding. But at the same time, we had... Uh, full control or, or over what we were doing, and we were not distracted by uh, fundraising. So, so there are pros and cons. But uh, uh, part of um, part of the reason it took us um, so many years to grow to grow to the scale is that we bootstrapped, and the first few years we were uh, really concerned with just survival. So anything we did, uh, we had to make sure it had a very short, very quick payback period. Uh, kind of any new feature we build, any new investment we made in product or uh, or marketing, it had to have a quick payback. So that was there was a very strong limitation early on when we didn't have uh, didn't have any money. Uh, but then eventually, as the company built built up its uh, kind of profit cushion, could uh, we could afford to be more strategic and think about future more and and build for the future, not just for like a quick. A quick return. Uh, so that's that's how kind of bootstrapping shifted our uh, shifted our strat or not shifted but shaped our strategy uh, to some extent. Yeah, and that that kind of gives you some idea of trajectory. How long did it take for you to build up those cash reserves? Because you talked about bootstrapping needing to kind of be mindful of of kind of you know cash reserves and all that. Well, it's not binary, so it's hard to say that oh we kind of were building up cash reserves for two years and then we switched to kind of high growth mode. It, it's not like that. It's a gradual. Uh, process. So uh, early on, we were just, it was a singular survival was a singular focus, um, maybe for first six to 12 months. And then starting uh, from there, uh, we could afford to think more and more about, oh, what, what company do we want to be when we grow up and what's our mission, vision, and how do we want to uh, impact uh, this world? Yeah, I, I'm just wondering what was your guys's timeline. I'm not saying it's binary or anything, but what what did it you know how long did it take? Was it like three years, four years? I think it's just good for people to look at the story. Yeah, definitely. So what I'm saying is, uh, about a year, probably first year, we were just survival focused. No kind of. Uh, uh, of course, we had our vision, we had uh, some ideas of how the future would look like, but what we did in practice uh, was focused on just kind of getting enough. Uh, revenue to to continue existing and to continue building, and then after about one year, we had enough uh, surplus to to be more strategic in, in how we build our product, how we do our marketing, and so on. Great, love it. Okay, and you talk about, I mean, not a lot of people, even though we have a lot a lot of SaaS entrepreneurs on this podcast, you know, the concept of a payback period is really important. So, can you kind of talk about definition of payback period and you know just how it looked for you guys and how you how you see that term? Yes, uh, sure. For us, initially, our payback period was pretty much instantaneous because we spent an acquisition less than user paid us right away when they needed when they bought the product. So basically, payback was just right away. Uh, at least payback period for marketing. 
Uh, payback period for product uh, enhancements, that's harder to calculate. I, I can't even calculate that because, well, some of the things we designed back then are still generating uh, revenue. So it, it, that, that part is, uh, is just too fuzzy. Right. But for uh, kind of unit economics in terms of uh, marketing, it was instantaneous payback period. And we had to do that because we, we just didn't have any, um, any cash reserves when we started with Bootstrap. Right. Makes total sense, you know. So, I mean, look at your payback period. I mean, you guys don't have the luxury of waiting. You you, you guys didn't raise money, right? So it's not like you had a, a a cushion to protect yourself. So I think, you know, it's it's not a particularly sexy product or not product, but term to talk about. But it's really important, especially with uh, for any kind of uh, subscription business to to pay attention to their, their payback period because if you can pay back faster, you can reinvest it, you can grow faster uh, at the end of the day. Okay, so. Um, in the early days, I mean, you know, you guys have, you know, 10 million, you said daily active users, right? Yep. So in the early days, I guess, how did you go about acquiring, let's just say, your first, uh, well, 100,000 customers? So we approached it from two dimensions, because uh, from two directions, we didn't know which one is going to work better. So we approached it from directions of. So we were doing uh, B2B sales, went to conferences, trade shows, showed our product. Uh, try to uh, talk to potential buyers. Uh, it was very helpful uh, to kind of get feedback and to learn about what the pains we can solve and what are the pains we can solve for our users. So that was one direction. And then another was consumer. So we marketed to consumers and we marketed through social media and paid advertising. And paid advertising, many early startups shy away from paid advertising because it's viewed as expensive and it is expensive. Uh, but the benefit of that uh, compared to, for example, SEO or content marketing is that it is an instantaneous uh, feedback loop. Let's say you design a banner or write an ad copy and you can measure its effectiveness, how many people click who see it or how many people who click convert. You can measure it in hours, within hours. You can get feedback on that. And it allows us, allowed us at the time to test different ideas, test different messaging, positioning, even features. For example, we included descriptions of specific features in ads, very brief, short descriptions, of course. And by reaction of potential users on those ads, we could see if the feature is worth building or not even. Uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of some trick that you can, uh, you can use with paid advertising, but you cannot use it with, uh, with organic channels because organic channels, like you create a piece of content, you promote it, YSEO and it's already there. It's relatively static. You can't really do much experimentation with, with what's in it. So that's why I would not uh, discourage um, any starting entrepreneurs from uh, dabbling with uh, paid uh, just because you have so much control over it and you can use it for learning, uh, not necessarily for mass acquisition. Great. And so what, what do you think? I mean, and, and today, you know, t- today your team's much bigger. So, you know, what's one unique thing you think you're doing in terms of customer acquisition today? Well, <laughs> it, it, it is a, it is an interesting question because that's the thing about marketing. There is no one thing because as soon as something, as soon as you get good at something, what do you do? You scale and you scale until it stops being good until you hit the, the, the kind of marginal benefit it equals marginal cost. So it's like no point in increasing it uh, anymore. And, and then when we, what, do you next, what do you do next? You discover something else. So there is not one thing because as soon as we hit a gold mine, we basically tap it. And when it's fully tapped, we look for, for next one. So the one thing that 
I think is really important is building a process or building a machine, a team capable of discovering those gold mines on a reliable schedule. And it's incredibly hard. It's very hard because it's almost like, I don't know, going to a casino and predicting how much you're going to win by the end of the night. But, uh, but that's what it takes to, uh, to generate reliable growth because everything taps out pretty quickly. And uh, you just have to build a machine that, that, that kind of is capable of uh, drilling new wells. So you're, you're talking about hiring a great growth team, right, and essentially? Yes. Yeah. Hiring. It's not just hiring. It's, it starts with hiring, of course. Uh, when you get the right people, it's much easier to build uh, the right team. But team is not just hiring. It's also the culture. It's also the processes. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of components. Great. So the, the reason I'm asking that is because I think you know a lot of people here are they understand the concept of building a great team, a great culture, and everything. I just I'm looking more for you know tactically. Is there anything you think there's something unique that you're doing from a, a customer acquisition perspective? Yeah, just as I said, focusing on the process of trying new things on a fairly aggressive schedule. So that's I think that's some, one thing that often underestimated because there's just no magic bullet. There is uh, just thousand different things you need to try. Some of them will work. Some of them are not going to work. And the quicker and the better you are trying those different things, the faster you're going to generate growth. That's that's pretty much it. Okay. So, what do you think? I mean, in, in terms of going back to you know the early days of the business, or even maybe even later stages, what, what's one big struggle you faced while growing the business? <laughs> I, I hate sounding like a broken record, but it's uh, it's a somewhat similar answer because it's always a new struggle. You run into a challenge, and then that challenge seems like it's huge, it's bigger than anything you've seen before, and you don't know how to solve it. But then eventually you solve it, and then two, three months later, it seems like oh yeah, that was so trivial. Do you have an example? Yeah, for example, uh, starting with uh, marketing channels that are cannot be measured precisely. We struggled with that. We didn't know how to uh, how to do that. We didn't kind of making the switch from uh, where you spend a dollar and you get uh, two dollars back to uh, when you spend a dollar and you don't know how much you got back. You have to estimate it. You have to triangulate it, or you have to make a leap of faith and wait for like several months for it to materialize. So, kind of switching to uh, or increasing the proportion of those channels uh, was a little bit of a struggle for us. And um, we just learned how to do it, and then now it isn't. Got it. Okay, great. And so, are, did you guys build some internal tools where you can measure, you know, that out pretty easily? Because nowadays there's a lot of SaaS solutions, but I imagine a couple of years ago, you know, what did you guys do to solve that? A number of things. So it's it's not it's not just one thing, but uh, one is uh, just kind of doing bigger things and looking at aggregate impact or aggregate change, uh, using uh, more sophisticated measurement things, understanding the value of brand uh, better and, and so on and so forth. So, so it's, uh, um, it's really just one thing. Uh, if it was one thing, it would be too easy and it would not be, it, do, it would not be challenged. It would be something you just read the recipe and execute on the recipe. But uh, yeah, things that become challenges usually are not solved with not just doing one thing. Great. And so, you, I mean, you started early days. I mean, you started when the, the company, the, the inception of the company. I mean, how has your day to day changed since the inception to now with, you know, we're talking over 100 people? Uh, it changed a lot. So initially, it was just basically everything. 
you have to come up with an idea. You have to execute an idea, code, draw mockups. Uh, then you had to market that idea to users, and then you had to do accounting and taxes in the end. So basically, one person doing everything. And then eventually, or oh, with time, you, you're starting to specialize. You start to think, oh, what am I best at? What should be mine? And what uh, should hire somebody to do uh, that? So that's kind of the step one. And then step two, you just stop doing things on your own at all and then become just manager or leader uh, and and um, just make things happen, not do it themselves, but just arrange pieces uh, so that the things start happening, hire teams, uh, build processes and so on. So that's kind of a, the next stage. And then the, next, the, the stage after that is not even arranging things yourself, not even building teams yourself, but creating leaders who do that inside your company that's that's kind of a the next stage after that great and uh, actually just transitions to the, the, the next thing i mean I, I talked to a friend um he has you know a lot of his uh development team in ukraine um seems like you have the office in kiev right uh that's correct got it okay so i mean i mean talk about that a little bit i mean talk about working with you know developers in ukraine Are, is most of your dev team over there uh, how, how's i guess how's the engineering team structured over there at grammarly so uh we have engineering teams uh in San Francisco, Kiev, and uh, New York. And uh, each team is relatively independent, and it's not like managers are in one place and then and, and developers are in another place. It's, uh, there are just independent, relatively independent units. Uh, the team in Kiev is the biggest by size, and uh, so, so it's, it's not... At least in our case, it's not kind of no, not any kind of outsourcing or offshoring. It's just uh, three geographically distributed offices. So how does that work? I mean, like you know, different time zones and everything. Is do you expect them to work? How do you deal with the time zone difference? Because some of our developers, you know, are are you know, well, they're Eastern slash Western European. I'm just curious how you guys do it. Time difference is a, a challenge. So my communication is not a challenge because they're video calls and like asynchronous work and documents um, like Slack and uh, Jira, Asana, everything. Like they're tools to uh, communicate across distance. But time zone is one thing that is harder to overcome because we don't want people to compromise their lifestyle. We don't want people to be uncomfortable and to kind of create debt with their families. Uh, So the way we... uh, are overcoming this is making teams not locked to each other. So nobody's waiting for the other team to wake up or, or to uh, respond to a call. They're independent enough not to not to have to just wait for each other. Got it. Okay. So to, to make things simple, just I guess I'm trying to you know visualize this, right? So you might say, uh, you know, just to give an example, Ukrainian team might focus on working on you know sales related uh, you know items, right? And then you know SF team might be focused on working on you know um, I don't know marketing focused items, right? So is do you is that how you kind of break them out to different tasks? You could say that. It, it, yeah, it's not it's not exactly like that, but I think that this is a good simplified analogy that yeah, they, they do have different different tasks that they are equipped to complete on their own with maybe some feedback, some questions, but not uh, not free not frequent and not blocking. Got it. Okay. So, what is one must-read book you'd recommend to everyone? 
This is a hard one because there's so many good ones and, and they kind of, uh, you need to read more than one book to, to be a successful entrepreneur. And I, I can't pick which one is more important. And it's going to be one for, for, for some people and the other for the other. But I think two books that are absolutely essential would be Mindset and Grit. Simple names. I, I, I don't remember. I don't want to butcher the author's names because I don't remember them exactly. But I, I think these books just, they don't give you recipes. They don't give you specific answers. But what they give you is uh, values that are going to guide you to, to, uh, to find solutions to, 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 to the challenges and to make right decisions. Right. Love it. Both those books are good. We'll drop them in the show notes. But Max, this has been great. What's the best way for people to find you online? LinkedIn. Um, that's, uh, that's the tool I use the most for, uh, for professional networking. Twitter as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Max, thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, thank you. It's a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Growth Everywhere. If you loved what you heard, be sure to head back to growtheverywhere.com for today's show notes and a ton of additional resources. But before you go, hit the subscribe button to avoid missing out on next week's value-packed interview. Enjoy the rest of your week, and remember to take action and continue growing.